This episode is brought to you by VinSmart. Need help with your recall campaigns? DMVs, government agencies, fleet owners can learn more by visiting vinsmart.com slash businesses or call 1-888-950-9550. Welcome to AmbaCast, bringing news, information, and expertise to the Amva community. Here's your host, Ian Grossman. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the AmbaCast. In this week's episode, we are going to be talking about one of the most promising technologies to battle and end impaired driving, specifically drunk driving. And the technology that I'm talking about is the Driver Alcohol Detection System for Safety, D-A-D-S-S, or commonly referred to as DADS, and that's how we'll be referring to it in, in today's episode. And to talk to us about this technology, I'm pleased to welcome two guests. We have George Bishop. George is the Deputy Commissioner over at the Virginia DMV, which we all know a lot of active members from the Virginia DMV. And we also have Rob Strasberger, who's the president and CEO of the Automotive Coalition for Traffic Safety, ACTS, which is the sponsor for this developing technology. And we'll learn all what that means. Rob, George, welcome to your first appearance on the Amphicast. Thank you very much for having me. Yep. Thank you, Ian. So, Rob, let's start with with what this technology is. We hear about it being um, built into the vehicle and automatic detection. But tell us what that means when we're talking about a first-of-its-kind automatic detection. Right. So uh, from the very beginning, we wanted uh, dads to be uh, a driver assist system, something that uh, would... Uh, warn you, uh, at least uh, that you were potentially over the limit, and then take some uh, corrective action if, if indeed you were over the legal limit. So uh, we felt that that was necessary to gain consumer acceptance in the technology, and equally important uh, in that vein, we wanted to make sure that the technology didn't interfere with however you were used to in interacting with your vehicle. So it had to be fully passive. And that was a lesson that, that we took away from a previous attempt to use technology to change driver behavior, which was the seatbelt interlock experience of the 1970s, hmm. which was very, uh, they weren't well designed, if they weren't well thought out, and they basically forced two-thirds of drivers to change how they interacted with cars. And there was immediate pushback from consumers, uh, so much so that during the height of the Watergate constitutional crisis, uh, Congress had to rescind the law. Uh, and so we think that's a big lesson for us to keep in mind and why we want the tech to be fully passive not uh, hassle sober drivers, not interfere with how you are used to inter you know, interacting with your automobile. And I guess that's right out of the gate. It's something that really differentiates the concept behind dads from the current mainstream technology of an ignition interlock. That's correct. Um, we have... Uh, uh, no designs, no desire to enter or even disrupt the existing 
ignition interlock market, which is for offenders. Uh, that is well established, works well. Uh, that is not a market that we're, we're after. We're really looking for the broader application of the technology in all consumer vehicles uh, to help the, to give them the added peace of mind that they're on the right side of the law, that they're good to go. Uh, that uh, in particular, if they've been out to dinner and had uh, uh, something to drink, that uh, you know they're gonna they're gonna get home. Uh, safely and and not be a hazard to themselves or others. So is the design then, it's passive, meaning you don't know it's there, it's working in the background. Right. Uh, is the concept behind a technology like an interlock in the sense that the vehicle won't start if it's at a certain level, or it's simply going to provide information to the driver that you're at this level and you may not realize it? Right. So uh, we have ultimately what the DAD sensors will do is they will provide a signal to an onboard vehicle control module that is uh, proportional or a measure of your of the driver's blood alcohol concentration, and it will be up to the individual manufacturers, vehicle manufacturers that are integrating the technology in their vehicles, as to what to do, what they what do they do with that information? Do they just provide a warning? Mm. Uh, Do they allow the car to start but not move so that you at least have power to charge your phone, to call for an alternate ride or Uber or whatever have you? Or um, uh, does it not let the car start at all? And and ultimately, I think uh, it will be up you know, it'll be a function of each individual OEM's uh, risk tolerance mm-hmm. uh, as to what they want to allow or not allow. Yeah. And I guess it also could end up being a consideration for regulators, either at the the federal or the jurisdiction level. Whereas what I hear you saying, Rob, is you're focusing on proving that the technology can work to passively collect that data to tell what the driver's BAC is. What someone does with that data will be decided by the OEMs, by regulators, but not by you. <laughs> correct. That's yeah. absolutely correct. So our focus is really to come up with the, the best performing, most robust, most accurate sensor. Uh, and then it will be up to others to just to set the policies as to how that right. uh, sensor may be deployed. So let's talk a little bit about the sensors. Um, it's a passive sensor. So explain to our listeners, you know, how's it built into the car and what is it sensing? We've heard everything from breath to sweat to saliva. You know, how does it work in, in this system? Before we even went down this path with, uh, initially with, with uh, NHTSA and then subsequently uh, Virginia joined the effort as well, uh, the agency, NHTSA in this instance, did its due diligence, contracted with Volpe, uh, and did a technology scan and identified all manner of different technologies that might be able to uh, measure passively and accurately a driver's BAC. Uh, and there were probably four or five different technology approaches that were identified. Ultimately, it was uh, those were narrowed down to to really just one, 
which is that which uses the a technique called spectroscopy. It's very common uh, technique in the in the uh, uh, chemical field, hmm. uh, but it uses uh, infrared light uh, to uh, detect and then quantify the amount of alcohol in the driver. And we're using it in, in, we're developing two different approaches using spectroscopy. One is so-called distant spectroscopy. So that is looking at a driver's exhaled breath, uh, and making a determination as to, uh, what is their breath alcohol concentration and, and, you know, where, where that where they are with respect to the to the legal limit, whatever that might be, or the applied limit, whatever that might be, um, and so that would be integrated into vehicles, uh, you know, somewhere near uh, the the driver. So in our own test vehicles, we're testing two positions. One is uh, right on the steering column, right in front of the driver which honestly we thought would be the better location than the second, which is on uh, the driver uh, side door trim. But it actually turns out that maybe the one that's by the driver or in the driver door trim is better uh, simply because it's a little bit closer to the, to the driver, but also you're, you know, if you're a good driver anyway, you're checking your mirrors, you're making sure you can change lanes safely, et cetera. Um, the other technology is uh, uh, touch-based. So it's tissue spectroscopy, looking at the blood alcohol concentration in, in the uh, capillary bed of a driver's finger or in the dermis layer of their palm. And there we are looking at two different places to integrate. One is in the push to start button. Gotta, gotta, gotta use that to, to initiate the trip. Uh, and the other is in um, the steering wheel itself. Uh, again, a, uh, a control that's requisite for the driving task. <laughs> um, um, so, uh, you know, that way, in that way, we think they're both would be fully passive, would not in any way, shape or form change how you are interacting with your vehicle. Um, and... Then, of course, uh, the, the one thing that we need to do more research on is then um, beyond commercializing the technology is what information should we present, be presenting to the driver? We know we need to be presenting something, but what is that? And, and depending on what, that inform what information is presented, what does the driver understand and what action do they take? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that obviously this is all developing research technology, but you're actually testing the technology. And George, I think that's where Virginia really has come into play. You were the first state to volunteer to test this technology in more of a real world environment. Uh, when did that start and why? What was the thought process? Why did it matter for Virginia to want to be out in front as an early volunteer? Well, um, yeah, it's a really good question. And um, we were presented with the concept of uh, state highway safety office participation in the DADS project um, directly from NHTSA. Um, 
it's interesting. I was uh, I was having a uh, we were having a press conference with the governor. I remember the day um, at uh, a racetrack in Richmond and uh, with another uh, grant subrecipient in the Virginia Universe. And um, the the regional NHTSA rep was there. And after the press conference with the governor, <clears throat> she came up to me and she said, hey. Um, and, 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 and for this conversation, I'm going to, to uh, I, I need to stop and say that there are certain buckets of money that state highway offices get from the federal mm-hmm. government. Mm-hmm. And one of those buckets of money is to be used directly for alcohol related um, countermeasures. And, and if a state has um, a state law that does not fit the federal government's um, uh, what the federal government wishes uh, states to have for um, for um, open container laws, mm-hmm. then then there is a punishment to the state from the federal government in terms of money that that we receive for transportation, uh, and and a certain percentage of that is that uh, the penalty is that a certain percentage of, of the money that the state receives for transportation goes into what's called um, 150, 154 money, which is given to state highway safety offices for the purpose of um, performing uh, alcohol-related countermeasures. And Virginia, uh, Virginia's open container laws do not meet the federal requirements. Therefore, a certain percentage comes to the state highway safety office to be used uh, for alcohol-related countermeasures. Okay, mm-hmm. so long backstory, but that is the backstory. So we have this 154 money sitting there, and NHTSA says, "Hey, look, we're looking for a state that might have some alcohol-related um, money, 154 money, that that might wish to participate in this program." And they explain the program to me, and um, it it just seemed like a, a tremendous, first of all, a great way to use money that might that needed to, to be used for alcohol-related purposes. We were a state that had that opportunity. And then we listened to what Dads was doing. It was the first time I had heard about Dads. Mm-hmm. And so what, what year is that? You said remember the date. Remember what Well, it was. Uh, was? <laughs> yes, it, it, it was pitched to us in 2015. I believe we okay. got started in 2016, if okay. that's correct. Um, yeah. I'll, I, Rob might might know the date better than I do when we actually signed the paperwork with the attorneys. But, <laughs> but you know, it, that. Um, but yeah, twenty twenty fifteen, and 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 so when when I when I looked at the concept, um, and I'm going to have to say right now that that for, I, I I look at these things sometimes personally. It's hard not to. And um, at the time. He was a young teenager. I have a, a teenage son, and 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 I, I only have the one child. And I'm and I'm thinking, I and I hear this, and I think about how wonderful it would be to be a part of um, envisioning a world in which drunk driving had been eradicated. Mm-hmm. The technology behind what Rob has just described to you. And spectroscopic, whatever the word was that he used that I can't pronounce. All of these technological things, what it boils down to, to me personally, is that we were given the opportunity to work on a project that envisioned a world without drunk driving. Yes. Now, 
who could not want to be on board with that? And if and if you have a if, if Virginia is given the opportunity and we have the opportunity because we have the money in um, and the 154 money that could only be used for alcohol related projects. Yes. And it was enough money to work on this and, and also complete all of the other things that we were working on. Then it was just a win win. Yeah. And, and, and so I walked away from that meeting and I said that I'm so excited about this. The first thing I want to do is to just get everybody on board and have a meeting and figure out how we can make this happen. And, and literally that's what, what we did. And it, it, you know, um, there's the concept and everybody's saying that you want to do it. And then there are the, the T's and, that need to be crossed and the I's that yeah. need to be dotted. Um, because in the end it is federal money and you can only, you know, and, and the federal government has lots of rules for this money. <laughs> um, but once we got all of the, the rules, and again, like you said, we were the first state, so it took some effort to develop the plan. Um, but once we did that and we got NHTSA to sign off on it and uh, ACT signed off on it um, and, and Virginia DMV signed off on it, then we were ready to go. And we've been, um, I think we've had a great partnership um, ever since then. And, and I'm excited to talk to you about what we've done since that time. And and, it, and Ian, it really has been a fantastic partnership, just both from the perspective of the of the wealth of of on road data uh, that's been collected that helps mm-hmm. us, you know, make our sensors better and refine our measurement algorithms. But also, uh, one aspect of of the effort with Virginia is uh, the opportunity to go out and at various events. Uh, around the state, educate Virginians about the dangers of of driving after drinking. Uh, But then, you know, technology is coming and then they get a chance to experience the technology. Yeah. So what's really, and and I'm glad you brought that up, Rob, because we we look at, at what we're doing in Virginia with Virginia Driven to Protect, which is the name of the program in Virginia. It's called Driven, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Driven to Protect Virginia. And um, we really have a, a twofold when it, when you boil it, when it all boils down to two two goals. And um, one is um, education awareness and um, measuring the acceptance of this uh, technology in the general public. So educating the general public, making them aware of the technology, introducing them to it personally, physically. But, um, and in other ways, which we'll get to. Um, and then the second track of what we're doing is the, the deployment, um, the real world uh, deployment, the opportunity to, to measure uh, the effectiveness of the technology, to talk to drivers about how they interact with the technology, to see how the technology works in every single, uh, you know, whether it's cold and snowy outside or whether it's 95 degrees and humid, whether it's raining, whether you're at, at, at the, you know, in an area that has like uh, salt air because it's by the ocean or whether you're in, 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 in the mountains or all of those kinds of real world potholes, all the things that we all encounter when we're driving. How does the technology hold up? How is it impacted? How do drivers 
react to it. What are some of the things that we learn from drivers? <laughs> and Rob will tell you, we've learned some really interesting things about the technology just that you would never think of because we had real people in the real world environment, in the wild, as I like to say, um, driving with vehicles that um, are equipped with the technology. So uh, explain to me how that how that part worked. Did you get general public volunteers? You said, here's a, here's a new car to drive for a year and we want you to drink, but don't drink too much. I mean, how does that, how does that work? Well, I will say um, that I am going to give, um, I'm going to give a, a, a whole, a big shout out to the commissioner of the Virginia Department of Motor Vehicles, Rick Holcomb, um, who is well known to you and your listeners, I'm sure. Absolutely. Um, we had established a partnership at DMV um, with a, a local Richmond uh, transportation company called James River Transportation. Literally, Rick can see their offices from his window, from the seventh floor of the <laughs> Department of Motor Vehicles building in Richmond. It is about two and a half blocks from us. But they had been partners with us in other um, types of uh, stakeholders uh, projects that we had been working on at DMV in the past, uh, historically have been um, good partners with us. And Rick said, hey, we're looking for we came to him and said, we're looking for partners to, to, to be the first to deploy. He said, well, what about James River Transportation? And it, it just seemed like the, actually the perfect fit. And, uh, and so we, we approached the president, uh, Stephen Story of uh, James River Transportation, who was immediately open to the concept. I have to say, um, Stephen has been a delight to work with. He embraces the technology. He is a forward thinking, um, uh, business owner who mm -hmm. is, um, you know, one of the main, when you own a transportation company, safety is, is your priority. Absolutely. And, and so he understood immediately, um, as, as many people do when they hear about this technology, understood immediately how important this technology could be in the future. And so he was very prepared to, to, um, allow, this technology to be uh, included in vehicles that they operate. And so we, we began uh, discussions with them. We identified the types of vehicles that they utilize. Um, we, we ended up, um, you know, focusing on um, a, a product, a, a vehicle that they use in two airports to uh, transport uh, folks to and from airports, the Richmond airport and the Norfolk airport. And uh, the vehicles that they used, they um, they allowed us to, and then and then they gave them to the technology folks, and then Rob can take it from there. Yeah. I, so I mean, we identified those vehicles. Uh, we we uh, uh, then developed uh, uh, kits uh, that we would then uh, install in the vehicles that had all of our sensors, all of our data acquisition systems. Uh, Etc. It's not a trivial task, um, uh, but uh, once we develop those kits, uh, we would work off hours uh, at their facility uh, so that we weren't disrupting their own operations to install these kits, and then we put the vehicles back on the road. Um, we have um, we know where those cars are at any moment in time. They are uh, 
constantly squawking uh, operational data, not only from the vehicle and the sensors in real time to uh, our, uh, our cloud and our data analysts are looking mm -hmm. at that data um, all the time. Um, and, uh, you know, if there is, uh, uh, you know, we've, we've, we've used that to be able to, uh, I can't, I forgot the number of, of software updates that we've made <laughs> to our measurement algorithm, just, just from, uh, from the data that we've collected in that one instance. And I will say what's, what's really great about this is we, we, on the program, we do our own testing under highly controlled laboratory conditions uh, in a clinical setting in a hospital with real uh, uh, subject, human subjects, hmm. and our own on-road testing with dosed passengers, but that's all highly controlled. Here, we're putting this in the hands of people that are just using it as they would on any given day, who don't have any knowledge about the technology, may have some preconceived notions, uh, but it's it's like putting it in the hands of uh, everyday consumers. Uh, in terms of an interesting story, I mean, one of the things that that, that uh, stands out for me is very early on uh, when we began, when, when we first put these vehicles on the road, uh, one of the drivers was complaining about a high-pitched uh, electrical noise, a whine. As it turns out, he wore hearing aids and hmm. it was a frequency uh, that was picked up. And so interesting. note taken, uh, <laughs> if we can avoid that, uh, which, which we then made a design and you know, redesign and, and, and avoided that. I mean, that's the kind of thing that you're only going to stumble across if you put the cars in the hands of everyday operators. But in this case, you know, these everyday operators, they're, they're professional drivers. They're, they're yes. driving for, for their job. Um, I would imagine, you know, in that case, if you're getting data back, that it's the, you want the data that's, the, that's the, it's detecting that there's alcohol in their breath, but that's probably not really good news if you're getting that data and they're supposed to be professional drivers. So how have you been able to balance that need for that data with we really, you know, that's problematic. If we start getting too much of that kind of data from a professional transportation company. Well, luckily, uh, you know, we've not seen that uh, with JRT. There have been positive readings, and, and I will tell you that when that happens, there are a number of people that get uh, either texts or emails instantaneously. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and when that happens, we immediately go into uh, JRT's uh, standard operating protocol for following up on you know, uh, such incidents. Uh, but in every instance thus far, it's been some something that's going on with our system. Yeah. It's not been the driver. Hmm. Now I will tell you, um, you know, in, in, not in here in the U S but with one of our technology providers in the fleet that, uh, uh, they had instrumented similar kind of fleet, albeit, uh, uh, not road vehicle, but light rail, um, their best operator, their longest term, operator was consistently uh, having positive results. And at first he denied it. And the company believed him because he was their 
best long-term, but I don't know what motivated him, but finally it's part of the follow-up and investigation. He finally said, yeah, I've got a problem and I've had some for a long time. And that's, and that's highly functioning. And that's really what we're talking about here. I mean, uh, the folks, you know, I mean, law enforcement, I believe, call them the amateur drunks, the people that go out and get silly drunk on New Year's Eve or whatever. We're going to catch, you know, those people are going to be caught. It's the people that are highly functioning, that have built up a tolerance and have gotten skilled at hiding their problem. One of the great things about um, James River Transportation, there were a couple of different ways you could have gone with this, right? You could have gone with a, a vehicle that that um, is part of a fleet vehicle, but you know, um, maybe it was a vehicle that's driven that's given to one person, and that one person drives it every day at eight o'clock, and then parks, and then drives it every day at five o'clock, and goes home, and you know, it, you would have it on the road, but but it would really be on the road on the road, you know, twice a day with the same driver for the same route every time. The, having James River Transportation gives us the opportunity we have 19 different drivers who um have uh have been involved i think it's 19 or 20. um they we have given and, and i've got some statistics here uh that's really fascinating um uh, over a thousand days at 1085 total days uh driving um we've taken 76,500 samples breath samples um those vehicles have been driven a total of 61,000 miles. Um, and uh, that's for 11,859 hours. Um, that kind of data has um, been invaluable. And one of the things that Rob points out in when he's talking about, um, you know, to this point, all of the positive results have been false positives. That's one of the reasons for this project. That's one of the reasons for the deployment at this stage is because we have to help them determine the circumstances under which this technology is delivering a false positive. Because once this is deployed um, commercially, the acceptance will immediately go away if the public is um, is uh, confronts a situation where the technology prevents them from driving and they're not impaired so right so a false positive is 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 you know it's good to get them in some ways because it helps us to learn and to and from learning fix it so that um, so that we can offer a product or that Axe and, and KEA can offer a product that uh, will not inconvenience a sober driver. Yeah. And so where are, yeah, go ahead, Rob. And, and I was going to say the flip side of that is we also cannot bias the operation of the sensor towards false negatives because now then we are letting, letting people Just as bad, yeah. drive that <laughs> we're trying not. Right. Right. So where are you on that journey, you know, of you've been field testing, you've got a lot of data, um, how much more data and what type of data do you feel like you still need to get to a point where you could say, 
I think we've got a product here that, you know, might be more market ready or whatever you want to, however you want to phrase it. Right. So earlier this summer, we announced that we expect to be able to begin licensing the first product powered by dads. It is based on the breath technology. It is intended for use by uh, fleets who mm-hmm. want to make sure that their operators are, are alcohol-free. Um, we, where we're at with that is we're doing our final confirmatory testing. Uh, and then that will, like I say, we'll begin licensing that this, this uh, later this year. Acts as a nonprofit. Um, we will not make or sell the technology, but we will license it for those who, who have that ability. Make it, sell it, support it in the field. Um, and so you won't be producing it. Your, your job was to design it, prove yep. it and say, now folks that want to go and build it and sell it, here's, right. here's the blueprint, go forth and, and go. That's correct. And, and because we are a nonprofit, uh, we must license to, uh, anyone who has the ability to make and sell it, et cetera, on the same terms. So we can't show favoritism. Our job mm-hmm. is to benefit society as a whole. So if I've got, I could be, I could be talking to you and I could be talking to your competitor and I'm going to license to both of you. And it's mm-hmm. going to be, you know, you're going to have to duke it out in the marketplace. Don't expect me to give you uh, mm-hmm. uh, an up on, on your competitor. Cause I'm not going to do that. I can't do that. Um, do you see that? Is that market starting to form where there's technology providers who are going to build it and sell it to the manufacturers? Or do you think the OEMs might just build it themselves, you know, as a, as a built in into the manufacturing process. Yeah, uh, we have, we're approaching it both ways. So um, uh, in each instance with the breath and the touch technologies, we, we will have a fleet version, which will be integrated most likely after series production or after aftermarket kind of right aftermarket. And then the other version would be the widely deployed that would be integrated at the time of mass production. We are talking to uh, some of the world's largest uh, safety system suppliers who are very interested in this technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, you know, we're talking to uh, many, many, many of uh, uh, the automakers as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, in, in every case, you've got maybe uh, two or three camps of folks. Uh, there's the camp that want to be the leaders. They want to be the first to market. And then you've got the second camp of, I want to be close to the, to the leaders, because if they make something of this, I want to be positioned to jump on it. And then you've got the third category where they're, their product is very price sensitive. They would risk uh, making themselves uh, not competitive with their with their uh, uh, competitor if they were to use the technology. So they're going to be they're going to bring up the rear. Um, but is the blueprint of the technology? Are there any major differences between those different deployments, aftermarket, built into passenger fleets, commercial fleets? Um, is there any difference in the underlying technology in terms of how it relates to that deployment? Uh, yes. So uh, let's let's talk about the breast since that's the closest one. 
right now where the breath technology stands is it, it, we are very confident that it is, can make a yes, no determination as to whether or not alcohol is present. We're less confident about its ability to quantify the amount of alcohol mm. above 0.04, roughly. Okay. Okay. So we, we would be licensing that as a, as I said, a zero tolerance device, a yes, no device. We'll have the Which ability. Is where commercial fleets and commercial vehicles, it's a, a natural fit. That's right where that's a natural fit. Yep. Exactly. So what we need to do from this point forward is we have, and, and we're working on this to improve the sensitivity of our detectors, uh, to have confidence in the alcohol measurement that we're making uh, actually up to 0.12, but certainly through 0.08. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and we're doing that now so that the, the breath system that we will be licensing, you know, at the end of this year will be different from that which we'll license in a couple of years from now, primarily in the alcohol detection scheme. Uh, hopefully it'll be smaller too, uh, so that it's more easily integrated into vehicles. Uh, but that there will be that difference. Um, similarly, on the touch side, uh, its performance is a um, uh, little bit more linear over the over the um, BAC range. So it doesn't matter. You know, it does better at lower levels of BAC versus higher levels, but um, there, you know, it's just the, uh, we, we used laser, uh, laser diodes, specially built laser diodes and just getting them the right power uh, and maintaining that power through the system. Because every time, if we were to shoot the laser through the air, we lose nothing but we've got to shoot it through uh, beam splitters and, and mm. other lenses that concentrate. And we start to lose some of that power and any loss, if we don't know what that loss is, will be interpreted as some amount of alcohol. So that is where we're at right now is uh, how do we power our lasers? How do we manage that power? How do we preserve the maximum amount of light through the system so that we have a really strong signal so we can say, yeah, absolutely, that's alcohol. Um, and doing that and keeping it all invisible and in the background so that the, no one in the car even knows it's happening. And, and, and I might add, doing it in, 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 in a very, very short period of time, which is the amount of time, because a, a driver is not going to wait five seconds to, mm -hmm. for a right. car to determine whether or not it's going to start or move or whatnot. It's got to happen almost instantaneously. Uh, actually, our spec is 325 milliseconds, so there third of a second. 325 milliseconds. And, and we got a lot, originally we got a lot of pushback on that spec, but, but and, and the derivation of that 325 milliseconds is for probably the best... 20 years, we've had ignition uh, engine immobilizers on cars. You know, you've got an electronic chip in your key that generates a code that is then matched to the code in the engine control module. 
And if mm -hmm. it does match, the car will start. And that communication happens over about 325 milliseconds. And to our knowledge, not many drivers know that such a system is on their car. So we, did, right. we deem that uh, passive <laughs> as a result. Yes. Now, what we didn't know at the time we set that spec, but I think uh, now with the internet and you know the high bandwidth and everything else, there is data that actually compiled by Google that if you are trying to access a website and it takes longer than 250 milliseconds to load, you move on. So, I mean, we've, I think the internet has trained us to be very impatient with technology. Yes, that's the truth. And so while we might adjust that 325 milliseconds a little bit, we're not going to make wholesale changes to it. So George, what's next in, in Virginia? You know, you're working with this one transportation company. You're continuing to collect the data there. You know, Rob talked about the other data that's needed at, in the large scale. What about in the Virginia tests? Well, um, so I, I'd like to I'd like to start what's next in Virginia by talking about the other track that when I mentioned that we we had sort of two tracks that that were going on in Virginia. One was the deployment, and the other is the education and awareness part. And I do want to touch base on that a little bit because um, because it's great to have a technology that that we can put in a car, but until the public uh, understands it, is aware of it, and accepts it, then that you know it's you know the the uh, the manufacturers might be less willing to make it part of a safety package or or or, or may may not put it in there at all. So so. A, a, the other half of what we're doing in Virginia is really making people aware. Now, um, we had been going great. We, we were we were making great progress until COVID hit, um, and we had to do a little bit of a pause. But prior to COVID, we had been to um, dozens and dozens of, of uh, events in Virginia. We built um, something that called the Learning Experience Trailer, um, which we take to um, outdoor events and you know, racetracks, uh, baseball games. Um, um, I think we, 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 we took it to the AMBA conference in Philadelphia. I've been in the trailer, yes. <laughs> I've been in the trailer at multiple events. Um, so uh, in any event, the, the, this is one of the things that we use to, to, to show the public not only about the technology, but, but as Rob pointed out, it also teaches people about how alcohol is metabol metabolized in the body, mm -hmm. um, how we become impaired from alcohol. And, and it shows uh, sort of the history of the, the, the dad's uh, technology from a device that is as big as a, um, let's say, a shoebox um, down to what we have now, which is maybe um, smaller than a cell phone. And, um, and importantly, and I think that this is where you really make the impact with, uh, with, with uh, the general public or with, with people, um, is that we they put it in a vehicle and um, equipped the vehicle with a screen, a computer screen, which shows um, in real time on a graph um, the alcohol level of a person's breath in the vehicle. And you sit in the vehicle and you can see just, just by breathing naturally, you know, whether you have alcohol on board or not. And then, and then they will give you like, let's say, um, 
you know, hand sanitizer, which we all know these days, we all know has alcohol in it. And, and then you can see how the sensor really shows a complete change in, in the amount of alcohol in that, um, in that environment. Uh, now, we <laughs> think about putting that in, in, in a convention hall right next to um, the <laughs> where they're, where they're uh, yeah, giving out drinks, right, or during reception <laughs> or, or at a baseball game <laughs> after people come back out or at a mm. racetrack, okay? <laughs> um, and, and I think you get it, the, the idea is that people, it, it really, it hits home with people. And anecdotally, I can just tell you that the comments that we get from people about, uh, you know, I, I wish that, that my cousin had this in his car mm. Because it has really impacted his life, it's affected his life, and or or you know, and 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 you can fill in the blank on all of the things. It's like I wish this had been in the car of, and then fill in the blank. Um, and we have done we have done two major surveys um, where we first of all we described the technology and and the type of technology and what it does to people who had never seen it and and sort of got you know, got their ideas of, of whether or not they would accept it or not. And then, and then we've, and then we've done a similar survey after three years of showing it to the public and, you know, got some feedback from the general public again. Uh, first of all, are you more aware? And, you know, people were clearly more aware of it um, than they were beforehand uh, and their acceptance rate and that type of thing. Um, and so, so, Doing that, uh, we're, we're getting back at now that people are gathering again for events. We're beginning to do that again. But in the meantime, in between, COVID made us rethink how we did that. And one of the things that we had planned to do, interestingly, before COVID hit, was that we had planned on um, utilizing um, the location that we have in Sterling, Virginia, of uh, the Driven to Protect office and the, and the lab there. And we were going to try to get uh, high school students, give them an opportunity to come in as part of a STEM um, research kind of uh, project to, to teach uh, in, a, you know, in, in that environment to give them the opportunity to come in, just that one local school district to come in and, and, and have some, some time learning about the process of, of, of building the technology and, and you know, the, you know, the, the science behind it. And, and then COVID made us rethink that because we couldn't do it. We sure. turned it into um, an, uh, an online uh, learning system that we call the Discovery Hub. And we put a lot of effort into this Discovery Hub and working with the Department of Education. And, and what we've been able to do now is we've been able to build and work with our partners, Department of Education, to build a learning Discovery Hub for high school students that will go well beyond. The, the, the students in Loudoun County and is now going to be available to all of the students in the Commonwealth of Virginia, uh, teaching them about the technology, teaching them about dads, teaching them about drinking and driving. It is a fantastic program. And it's, it's something that we never would have done had it not been for COVID. Um, but I think it, it not only is something, and, and these modules that have been put together and that have been uh, uh, vetted through the Department of Education and modified because of the revisions that they've asked us to make uh, is something that not only will will be established for students, but in Virginia, but, you know, could be a model for students in, in, in other states. Um, 
just like this entire Driven to Protect program could be a model for other states that might have the same opportunity that I described to you earlier when we first started our conversation and, 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 and have other states be part of this important project as we move it. So one of the things that I try to do whenever I go and talk to other state highway safety offices is find out, you know, is there an opportunity for that for their state to participate mm -hmm. in this program? Because it is, uh, I think, going to be something that that um, we're all going to be able to look back on and say, you know, that we had a, a real part in making this uh, become, uh, you know, a part of uh, our, the fabric of our transportation society. And, 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 and ending a certain percentage of drunk driving, just, just making drunk drivers unable to drive on the roads and, and thereby saving lives. So I have to ask you, George, because you, you've kind of opened up the COVID impacts and you gave one example that I think folks are probably thinking now, wait a minute, I'm using more hand sanitizer now than I have, <laughs> you know, for years. Uh, if I use hand sanitizer and I get into this vehicle, is it going to think I've been drinking? when I'm really just, you know, being COVID safe. And the other thing I have to ask you back to the question around breath, um, are you looking, do, do the readings change if you're wearing your mask? Yeah, so um, the, the sensors that we have in our research vehicles uh, are collecting all the data all the time and reporting that data. So in the case of uh, hand sanitizer, for, for example, it has a certain signature. It rises very rapidly. It decays very rapidly. Uh, and that's, again, the beauty of the testing that we're doing with Virginia is we get to see that and, and, and uh, refine our measurement algorithms uh, accordingly. So the sensors that ultimately we will be licensing, uh, they will be locked down, so to speak. They won't collect all data. Uh, but rather they'll collect data at startup. And if it does see, if that sensor does see a very sharp spike, we'll know from our own operating experience that that's either hand sanitizer or, you know, we also test with aftershave, mouthwash, uh, tobacco smoke, uh, et cetera, certain diseases. Um, and that comes from our human subject testing that we do at McLean Hospital. Uh, up at Harvard. Uh, also, you have more alcohol in your breath. We have to know all that, be able to, you know, develop a signature for that so that we can back it out from our own measurement. Uh, in the case of mass, we still are able to make a measurement, uh, but we're still collecting the data to develop that, the so-called mask signature, because you're going to lose, yeah. you know, if it's a good mask... <laughs> It's the, right, the point of wearing the mask. You're going to lose some sample, right? <laughs> right. So, uh, but but we do see it. One of, one of the questions I get all the time is, you know, um, hey, I, I'm doing, I'm, do, I'm, I'm the good designated driver, right? I go out with my buddies, and and you know, there's there's mm -hmm. there's four of us, and and I'm the designated driver, and I get in the car, and the other three have right. been having a good time because I've been, you know, the the designated driver. So how does that impact 
right. um, that the, picks up me and not everybody else co- right. polluting the air. Correct. The atmosphere inside the vehicle. And Rob will tell you that that, uh, that it's smart enough to know that, that it, that's a distance away. Yeah. But I imagine that's where the lasers that you talked about early on, right? That, you know, is really trying to target in on where is that, where is that breath coming from? Well, actually, uh, in the case of the breath system... Uh, uh, we use carbon dioxide as a so-called tracer gas because as uh-huh. you know, we all emit CO2 as we're breathing and uh, it's, it's normally within a certain range. So we use that to be able to know, okay, this is a, this is a sample coming from the driver versus elsewhere in the vehicle because we cert- might pick it up, but it can distinguish whose it is. Correct. Now, we may want to, or an OEM may want to supplement that with a, an additional system, maybe a camera-based system. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so, and and they may well do that. In the case of uh, the touch system, we have a little bit different approach. Uh, we actually are using um, uh, technology that's in vehicles now that help to tailor. Uh, the, the deployment of the airbag to the occupant that's in that particular seating position. We actually use that in a, a, as a, a, a part of an electrical, low voltage electrical circuit so that when you reach out as the driver and you're sitting on the driver's seat mat and touch the starter button or touch the steering wheel, you complete that electrical circuit. And the system knows, okay, this is a, uh, um, uh, a sample from the driver. If you reach over from another seating position, it knows that too, and it won't start. And I can tell you, a little bit funny, maybe I shouldn't tell this story, but I demonstrated this system uh, to then uh, Administrator Rosekind, and he was in the passenger mm-hmm. seat. And I showed how I could complete the circuit, and then I asked him to reach over and push the starter button, and of course nothing happened. And then because we had yet to tune the antenna of the system, you know, to its optimal performance, I then grabbed his wrist very firmly (laughs) and and I closed the circuit. Uh, Of course, he thought I was getting fresh with him, but anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, but we, we know from the very beginning of this program, certain individuals are going to be motivated to defeat it. And, of course. And so we're working to harden our systems to make sure that, you know, that's difficult to do. Yeah. Well, I think, though, the, the promising thing, besides all the great things you've talked about technology, is whatever it is, it's better than what we have now, which is no ability for someone unless they've already offended, in which case they may have an ignition interlock. Right. Um, but, you know, in, in too many tragic cases... Um, by that point, it's too it's too late. It's too late. Uh, the crash and the fatality has occurred. Yeah. And so, it, and I think that's important to um, it, it's an important distinction to bring out because um, the the version of this that the public is familiar with is the interlock system, right? And that is is seen by the public and for for good reasons because it is um, a punitive device. It is given to people because of past behavior and uh, and so one of the things that we're doing with our education and awareness program is we're, we're making that distinction right we're, we're, this is not a punitive device this is not something that you know 
when it is when it is deployed and in the in the, the iteration that the public will get it, um, it will be passive. It will not be something that you have to directly blow into, um, unless you know it needs more. But but it is not going to be put in your vehicle because of mm -hmm. your past behavior this is something yeah, it's, that... it's not unlike you know airbags and anti-rollover technology it's all about what else can we do in this vehicle oh. to keep you and everyone else safe correct or 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 even more on point like a lane departure warning system or yes. forward collision yeah. warning system it's helping the driver do their job better that's uh, right well, gentlemen, I, I really appreciate you taking the time today to, to talk about it, share some of the, you know, early early developments or, or not so early as it's it's maturing quickly. And I'm really excited to hear about the licensing that's about to start um, in the near future. And maybe we'll have you back uh, in another number of months or a year. We'll see how that early deployment has gone. And I think, you know, George, I think you said it said it best early on. It, it's all about an opportunity to end drunk driving, which, you know, tragically still takes too many lives and is too much a leading cause of fatalities on our highway. One third still to this day, one third of all traffic fatalities in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and it's no different throughout the nation, yeah. um, you, are somehow related to alcohol. And, yeah. and if we can end that, imagine a world that is rid of that. And, and that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. And, and I would go a little bit further and say, you know, you cannot have a zero vision without confronting and, and solving this issue. True. Absolutely. True. Well, thank you, gentlemen. I very much appreciate the time. Thank you all for listening this week to this uh, exciting episode. Uh, quickly, just tell us one of you, for those that are listening and want to get more information and want to dive even deeper, uh, where, where might they go? What's the best website? I would probably say dads.org, D-A-D-S-S dot org. There you have it. Excellent. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to our producers, Claire Jeffrey and Chelsea Hadwin. And until next week, everyone, we'll see you back here on the Amvacast. Stay well. Thank you for joining us for Amvacast, hosted by Ian Grossman, produced by Claire Jeffrey, music by Gibson Arthur. This episode was brought to you by Recall Buzz, powered by VinSmart. Visit us at amvacast.podbean.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify.